0: morning for various reasons Uh, and we have some of you who have not been able to be with us before and we're thankful that you're here as well as we look forward to studying for a few moments together this morning here in this setting and again we're thankful to all those who may be watching online and if you're viewing this video later we certainly appreciate appreciate you tuning in for that as well. I kind of feel like Uh, We need a bit of a reset. We kind of thought, you know, through March and April as we stopped meeting that this would be a short time thing and maybe we'd be back together again and as it's kind of continued on and on, we kind of have to reset again and figure out where we stand and we're thankful that you're willing to be here uh, if you feel like it on a Sunday morning that we can study in person together for a few moments because it is encouraging to be together and we're thankful certainly that you are here. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Last Sunday we began talking about a series of lessons, a particular field of study, about the idea of apologetics. Not giving an apology, as it does certainly sound, but giving a defense, giving an answer, Giving a reason and you see that word used there in that verse as we talked about it It's the verse that we usually point to because the Greek word that is used there an apologia But not an apology a defense for the reason or the hope that is within you It's interesting that that's an individual thing. We're talking about some general topics But that is an individual thing that it was that is within you now We all have the same hope in a sense But certainly we all have to do our part to be sure that we are ready to give an answer. It's a broad field of study, as we said last week. There's a lot of different things that we can do, a lot of different ways that we can take and look at this. So, this morning, we want to begin, and for the next couple of weeks, just touch on a, a couple of various topics. Maybe something that we revisit before the year's over with, maybe something that we come back to, uh, God willing, at some point next year to talk about a few more of the topics that fall under the umbrella of apologetics. But since we sort of laid the foundation last week, I hope that you'll bear with me as we want to, for the next couple of weeks, consider a couple of lessons that go along with this idea. On Monday night, July the 6th, I believe it was, about three weeks ago, television personality Don Lemon went on his television program that evening and he made this statement. He said, Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect while he was here on this earth. Now, if you set your politics aside or what station maybe you tune into for your news, that that was a statement made by this man in front of the world. Now, we don't have the opportunity or the ability this morning to call Don Lemon and ask him exactly what he meant or to see if he has a clarification on what he was meaning when he said that. As far as I could tell in the research that I was doing, he's not offered any kind of statement or clarification based on what he meant, whether he was saying that he was admitting that Jesus wasn't perfect or whether he was saying or referring to the fact that maybe at some point Jesus had said that he wasn't perfect, if if that's what he believes. What I do know is this. Don Lemon is certainly not the first person And most, absolutely 100%, won't be the last person, whether in word or in deed, whether in print or in video. He won't be the last human being to attack the person of Jesus Christ here upon this earth. You know, I think it's interesting. I believe that most people actually do believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, the research kind of backs that up. The Barna Institute or Barna Research conducted a study about five years ago, and according to their poll, they said that 92%, 9 out of every 10 adult American adults, 92% believed that Jesus lived, was a real person who actually lived. But, but, interestingly enough, along the lines of that same study, a little over half, okay, about 52%, a little over half, of adult Americans either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed that while Jesus was here on earth, He was human, and he committed sins like other people. A little over half, 52%. So what do we do with that? I mean, what what do we deal with all of that? That statement that is made by Don Lemon, those studies that we talked about just a moment ago, is this one of those items that we discussed last week where we just kind of say, you know, I'll just let someone else handle that? Or is this one of those things, again, kind of like we said some of the things that we might refer to last week, well, I'm not prepared to answer that type of question. Maybe you remember in your Bible Matthew chapter 22 Matthew chapter 22 verses 41 through 45 if you can see the scripture reference that's not what's up there. Matthew 22 41 through 45 is where we're looking right now. Jesus has been questioned by the Sadducees, which happened a lot. He moves on from them and goes and the Pharisees begin to question him. And in that passage As he begins to be questioned by the Pharisees, he says the question that serves as the title of our lesson, if you have your bulletin in front of you. He asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Well, that's our question for this morning. What do you think about the Christ? He asked the Pharisees who were standing in front of him in that moment, but I would say, and I think you might agree, he's asking through the centuries, even to us today. What do you think of the Christ? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was he? Was He real? Did He really live? Did He perform miracles? Did He die a truly terrible and very public death on a cross? Well, let's consider together this morning. Like many things in the field of the study of apologetics, and remember last week we defined apologetics in one way, as the art and science of defending the Christian worldview. So in the study of apologetics, like a lot of these fields of study, there are many things that we could do. There are many different ways that we could take a look at different arguments to expound upon the different ideas that fall under apologetics. But this morning, for the sake of time and our lesson, we're going to look at just three of those many areas of thought. Number one, let's talk about prophecies for just a few moments. When we think about the person of Jesus, it's important to consider the prophecies that there are about him. As I was thinking about this, Most of us love a good biography. Maybe you're into reading and you enjoy a good biography. But listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what we're talking about when we're talking about prophecies and Jesus. How many people have their biography written before they lived? Most of the time, the biographies you're going to read, that's not how it works. It's not possible to write about someone before they're even born. I mean, in fact, when we talk about biographies here upon this earth, we have biographies. We have autobiographies, but there's only one pre-biography if you will. In fact, if you've got your notes, we would notice together there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament referring to Jesus. Listen again. Over 300 fulfilled prophecies about Jesus Christ. When we look at the Old Testament, Now, to help us wrap our brains around that, there were a couple of writers that studied this. Their names were Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And they took a look at eight, simply eight out of the 300 prophecies. And they're listed, I I didn't bring them this morning and list them on the screen, but just eight out of the 300 prophecies that are listed in the Bible. And they were trying to see what are the odds that one man could simply fulfill eight Out of the 300 prophecies. And their answer was what we would call 10 to the 17th power. Now I had to hit enter and make that 2 in order to try to make it big enough to be seen. But 10 to the 17th power. And this is the way they described it. I have some, they're not quite silver, more gold. But silver dollars here, about the size of silver dollars. They did a study and they were trying to explain this. And they said, if you took silver dollars and you covered the face of Texas... All right? Everything's bigger in Texas, right? Now, landmass of Texas took silver dollars, not four. I've got four here. But you covered the face of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. And then you marked one of those silver dollars. And you mixed up, them, mixed up the coins again and, and laid them there two feet deep in stacks. We took Cody. We blindfolded Co- Cody, put a blindfold on him, and sent him into the land of Texas, Rome, however far you want to go, as long as you want to go to and fro, cover the the point of Texas, stop and pick up a coin, whether you pick up the top one, whether you reach a foot deep or whatever, and the odds of Cody finding that one marked silver dollar are the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those 300 prophecies. Now, I've seen people dispute that a little bit. I, I don't know. I'm not into mathematics like that, but that's the odds. And if that's even close, that's ridiculous by the way, it's almost impossible to try to understand the fact or how one person could go through all of these different prophecies. There are even some odd ones in the Bible. They talk about the gambling over Jesus' things. Psalm chapter 22 in verse number 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." So there's even prophecies about what was going on, not just that he hung on the cross, but what took place around him. His birthplace, Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And even the riding on the donkey, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember the triumphal entry as Jesus enters in there and begins what's going to take place around that time of his death. That's just three. We don't have time to look at all of them. We could probably spend more than, than all of our time today, from morning to when we usually have evening services, even studying just the prophecies of Jesus alone. But suffice us to say, when we think about those prophecies, they're not just little droplets in the Old Testament. It's not just a shot in the dark. It's people who are writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, who are showing us the man, Jesus Christ, the person who can fulfill all of those things that would be written about him. All of those things that would be written about him. It's quite something to behold in that state alone. Number two. Let's consider sources. Now, we might say when we talk about sources, we might also talk about the idea of witnesses. Sources or witnesses. Now, the first batch that we're going to talk about is hostile. And if you've got your uh, information there, you can fill in the word hostile, but we're going to get to the person that's listed there in just a moment. People, hostile sources or hostile witnesses are people who did not like Christ and did not want to further his cause. And they certainly didn't want his followers to believe in Christ. So these are people who are going against Christ, but yet they're writing about him. One of those folks was a man by the name of Tacitus. He was an upper-class Roman citizen. He lived around the time of 100 A.D., was writing then. He was most famous for writing Annals, A-N-N-A-L-S, the Annals, a history of Rome. And in that writing, he spoke of depraved christians and he also called christians efforts a deadly superstition and he also spoke of christ and he called christ their originator now this man tacitus he hated christians he hated christ but that's okay because he did have something to say about them So while he hated them, and that's certainly not okay and that we don't want someone to lose their soul, it's okay that he did because he's recording that these were things that were going on. Christ and his followers were relevant enough to society for people who hated him and them to record their efforts. A second one, again not on your list if you've got your bulletin, is Suetonius, who wrote around this same time, around 120 A.D. He wrote this, Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbance at the instigation of Christos, or Christos, a rendering of Christ, he, that's Claudius, the ruler, expelled them from the city. It is clear from Suetonius' writings that he recognized Christ as the founder of a historical religion. Again, we can start nitpicking about whether they believe, should have believed, what that means exactly, but these people are recording that jesus existed when we talk about hostile witnesses or sources the third that's in your bulletin is pliny the younger and yes that means there was a pliny the older as well we won't talk about him this morning but in one of his letters or in a letter that he wrote around 110 a.d he wrote the word christians or christian or christians about seven times in this one letter he also used the word christ Three times. The point of this when we talk about these hostile sources is it is impossible to deny the fact that Jesus at least existed. Because people are recording this fact for us. But it's not just hostile people who are hostile to his cause. But number two, we might also talk about Jewish sources or witnesses. Now, Romans were not the only people to write about Jesus. Alright? They were not the only folks in Jewish. History there was a record of, or a book of legal tradition called the Mishnah. You may have heard of that before. And it was connected with some other writings and became the Talmud. You may have heard that word before, which was was completed around 300 A.D. It was written by many early Jewish rabbis who would have written about Jesus if He was real. These early rabbis wrote in the Talmud these things, that Jesus was a transgressor in Israel... Listen to this one, that he practiced magic, they said, that he led people astray, but even number four, that he was hanged on Passover Eve. It's very interesting to read these writings and think about that these Jews who might even fall into the category of hostile to Jesus were writing these things. A second kind of category would be the person Josephus. Now, if you've been and heard sermons for any amount of time, you may have heard the name Josephus before. He was well known by many, born into a Jewish upper-class family in 37 A.D., and he is most famous for writing The Antiquities of the Jews. Now, I didn't double-check, but if I'm not mistaken, I think we have at least a portion of that, copies, in our library. You can go in our library before you leave, and if you're bored this week and tired of being stuck at home in quarantine, you can pick up Antiquities of the Jews at your own risk and go home and try to read through that. But we have that because it is recorded, and people refer to it a lot. Josephus wrote in the Antiquities of the Jews this statement, And there arose about this time Jesus, he called him a wise man. If indeed we should call him a man, for he was a doer of marvelous deeds. Continue on through that quotation, it says, He led away many Jews and also Greeks. This man was the Christ. It's interesting to consider these witnesses, these sources, if you will, both hostile and Jewish. All of these witnesses are great and good, and they certainly help as we try to prove our point. But do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, beginning about verse number 13, there in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, who do people, who do men say that I, the son of man, son of man am? And they give him the list. They talk about some of those folks that people are saying that he is. But then he got direct, and he said, but who do you? say that I am? Once again, I think echoing down through the centuries to us, who do you say that I am? This is what matters. What these men who wrote the pages of our New Testament had to say about Jesus. So finally, in this idea of sources, let's consider some biblical sources for just a moment. And as you write down what's accounted here, what's on the screen, there are four gospel accounts. We know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but those included with the 23 other New Testament books are the best records that we have of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, what happens is some people say, well, it's the Bible, and so they discount it. They say, well, that's the Bible, and it's supposed to talk about Jesus. That's what it does. You Christ followers refer to the Bible, so we're going to throw that out. And that's fine, because we can talk about the hostile witnesses. We can talk about the Jewish witnesses. But you can't trust the Bible, right? I mean, we just have to throw it out. It's no good. Did you know that when we think about history, Homer's Iliad, I don't know if I ever read Homer's Iliad in high school or anything, but of Homer's Iliad, it's said that there are 643 copies. 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. When we think about Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, that particular writing, it is said that there are 10 copies of Julius Caesar's. Gaelic Wars. 5,300 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament of our Bible. 5,300 manuscripts. You can't trust the Bible, right? We just have to throw it out. When you really do the study and you really consider the biblical sources and the truth that is there, it should cause us to not only grow in faith, but to be able to give a defense To be able to practice apologetics when it comes to the Bible. By the way, there's a whole study we could do. We're not going to do it in these couple of weeks, but about the Bible. How we trust the Bible, the sources of the Bible. And this is just touching the hem of the garment. To consider that many manuscripts that we could find that remind us of the truth. It is an absolutely undisputed fact That the New Testament has more historical verification on its side than any other ancient book in the history of the world. And once again, that's only talking about the Bible. As we consider Christ, then we can trust, yes, absolutely, the biblical sources. But finally this morning, let's consider one of the greatest arguments when it comes to this idea of discussing Jesus. The third thing we want to ask is, who was he? Right? Who was this man? If we can agree and even agree with people that he was a real person who lived, history records that for us, then who was he? Many of us are probably familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, the British writer. Some of you have probably read some of his writings. He's famous for Mere Christianity, the screw Tape* Letters, and for many of our young people, the Chronicles of Narnia and all those books that go along with that. Well, in his book, Mere Christianity, he was well-known, for discussing an idea called the trilemma. Trilemma. And there's been much discussion about it. Another great writer, Josh McDowell, writes in his book about it in greater detail. In fact, I think McDowell's book is very interesting to this thought because his book was entitled this, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That's what we're talking about here. That's really the premise behind this whole argument. There is evidence for Jesus living. So what do you think? What's the verdict? What is your conclusion? And as we are about to ask in just a moment as we get to our invitation song, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this evidence and what conclusion will you draw? Well, it's a trilemma because there are three things that should be listed on your bulletin in front of you. There are three ways to think about this man. First of all, though, let's notice Jesus claimed to be God. A couple of passages, John chapter 8 and verse number 24. Do You remember there that Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am. Now in your Bible that you have in front of you, it may say, if you do not believe that I am he. The he is added in to a lot of our English versions. But the word that's used there, Jesus is saying, I am. The first time we read that is where? God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. It's the name, the name of God that the Jewish people are said to not even want to utter. I am. We talked about that when we talked about Exodus about a year and a half ago when we studied it with our young people. Jesus is saying, if you do not believe that I am, that I am God, He's making a claim to deity. But not only that, we go forward to John chapter 10 and verse number 30. Jesus makes the statement, I and my Father are one. There's lots of different ways we could look at this as well, but Jesus claimed to be God. So if Jesus claimed to be God, then here is our trilemma. Number one, is he a liar? Is he a liar? He claimed to be God, and if that wasn't true, he's a liar. Was he a liar? Was he a charlatan? Was he a manipulator? Well, believe it or not, in his book, The Passover Plot, Hugh J. Schonfield claimed that Jesus was all three, a liar, a charlatan, and a manipulator. Listen, listen to this. I had to read it again last night when I was studying for a few more minutes. But in his book, this man states this, that Jesus manipulated his life in such a way as to counterfeit the events described in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. At times, this required contriving those events when necessary. He said, this man said, that Jesus plotted and schemed and made secret arrangements. And not only that, that Jesus planned to fake his own death on the cross, I guess sort of pass out and pretend to be dead, and he was going to revive himself again later. But Jesus didn't realize that the soldier would pierce his side. Thus, instead of recovering from faking his death, he did actually die. He said he was all three. He was a a liar, a charlatan, a manipulator, and he spent all of his life, can you imagine what's not recorded for us, running around behind the scenes, paying people off quite possibly in order to get them to, to say that these things really happened to him. Paying the soldiers to gamble for his things. Saying all these things would happen. The effort would be unimaginable to try to consider that. But that's what some people think. Was he a liar? Number two, if he wasn't a liar... He must have been a lunatic. He claimed to be God, and it wasn't true. We said that the first time. He claimed to be God, it wasn't true, so he was lying. Number two, he claimed to be God, it wasn't true, but he wasn't lying. He was just crazy. Ann Lee was the, one of the many people that you can find about around 1776, you know, that year. Anne Lee, who was a central figure to the Shaker group. Who thought that she embodied all the perfections of God in female form and considered herself to be Christ's female counterpart. Do we believe her? Do we think that she's someone who might be considered a lunatic or crazy? What about April 1993? Waco, Texas. David Koresh. People afterwards saying that he was the Christ. If Jesus didn't lie, if he wasn't lying, then he was just Crazy. You can Google the long list of people who have made claims to be a Messiah or the Messiah, who we might call a lunatic. But would a madman teach with such wisdom? Would a lunatic say to turn the other cheek? Would a madman say to pray for your enemies? Seems like a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? To consider that it wasn't true and that he wasn't lying, so he must have just been a crazy person. He claimed to be God. He wasn't lying. He's a lunatic, unless... He's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, but number three, he actually is Lord. If he wasn't a liar and he was lunatic, then what he was saying was true, and he's Lord. Plain and simple, he fulfilled the prophecies, he performed the miracles, he died and he rose again. Another study that we could consider about apologetics, and I have that lesson I'd like to preach at some point in the future about the resurrection of Jesus. He's telling the truth, and he is Lord. What a man. What a consideration. And again, we could go on and on considering these things, looking at these arguments, but I hope you get an understanding. I hope that you could have a conversation with someone. And whether it is what Don Lemon said on the news or whatever you read on Facebook during the week or whatever and whoever you might come in contact with, we can honor the name of Jesus and help people see who He truly was. And that's it. Let's end... Where we began, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an apologia, a defense, an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Give a defense of what? The hope that is in you. Where is our hope found? Where does our hope lie? It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. So we're about to sing the very simple song You've sung probably, no doubt, hundreds of times before. What will you do with Jesus? The question comes to us this morning. The question comes to the world time and time again. And it demands a verdict. It demands a conclusion. Will you consider him a liar? Will you consider him a lunatic? Or will you consider him Lord? You see those studies that we referenced earlier from Barna and other people? It's interesting that 92% 92 of people would say they believe in Jesus. That's great. But what are you going to do with it? Are you willing to act upon it? Are you willing to follow after him? Will you believe? Will you obey? Will you put him on in baptism? Because that's ultimately, as we conclude this lesson this morning, what we're asking you to do. Considering putting him on in baptism, believing enough that you're willing to take action. We can agree that he lived. But what will we do with that? Which of that, those three categories of that trilemma do we fall into? And if you believe that He is the Son of the living God, will you confess it before this great audience? Be baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to His church. Maybe you're in that category of people, though, who struggle with remaining faithful. And what happens is we believe, we make a statement before an audience, but then we struggle with living that out. And we hear something like what Don Lemon or anybody says, and instead of standing up and saying, we do like Peter did. You remember there around the fire? Jesus is almost ready to be crucified, and they ask Peter, don't you know this man? Weren't you with this man? He turns and shrinks away from the moment, right? He denies Jesus three times. Which category will we fall into? Will you become a Christian this morning, believing in him and acting upon that? Or will you come back to him? What will you do with Jesus as we stand together and as we sing? With Jesus, the question comes to you. And you must give an answer for something you must do. What shall it be? What shall it be?